Hi, I'm Sam. And I'm Andrea. Welcome back to Fly on the Wall. We can't wait to bring you this interview with three political analysts from the top of their fields. We were able to sit down with all three panelists from GU Politics event Diagnosing the Divide. Democratic political consultant John Andaloni was a chief pollster for Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign and Joe Biden's 2020 run. Tony Fabrizio was chief pollster for Donald Trump's presidential campaigns. And Jocelyn Kylie is the associate director of research at the Pew Research Center. So Sam, what did you find most interesting about our conversation with some of the best pollsters in the biz? Or the buzz. Um, you know, I have to say it was really cool to have both a Republican and Democratic nonpartisan perspective on polling and also the difference between what it is to be a political consultant when it comes to polling and what it's like packaging and analyzing data for public consumption on public opinion. I also thought it was pretty interesting that both the Republican and the Democrat, both Mr. Uh, Fabrizio and Mr. Anzalani, both highlighted race as a polarizing factor in American politics. I thought that was really interesting. Andrea, how about you? Yeah, that definitely was really interesting. And also, they talked a lot about the difference between media polls and campaign polls and how media polls often don't accurately represent like the truth of polling and because they don't have enough resources or spend the time to poll correctly. And so that was really interesting in seeing how polls are then used to inform candidates on like which policies matter most to their constituents. So that was really interesting. For sure. So we know that you're waiting with bated breath to hear our conversation with this trio. But before we dive into that, make sure that you fly by our social media by following at FlyOnTheWallPod and subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud. You can also shoot us an email at our Georgetown University email address at flyonthewall at georgetown.edu. We hope you enjoy this triple feature stop on our flight path. Okay, Mr. Fabrizio, thank you so much for uh, joining us here at Geopolitics. Um, so you are obviously one of the best of the best when it comes to um, polling on the GOP side of things. Um, thank you. <laughs> um, clearly, uh, we've seen a lot of shifting and changing in both the political operatives' trust of the polls and in the public's trust of the polls starting in 2015-16 up to now. So I'm just curious, from your perspective, um, how has how do you use political polling and public opinion data in your work? Well, I mean, public I mean, polling, public opinion research is crucial to politics in modern day politics. It's crucial to figuring out how to target voters, how to message voters, what the electorate looks like, where what the political environment, what your candidate's strengths are, what your candidate's weaknesses are, what your opponent's candidate, uh, what your opponent's strengths are, weaknesses. Uh, it tells you uh, what the top issues are, uh, not only from a top of mind perspective, but from what actually drives votes. Uh, so it's 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 invaluable. Um, and while there has been a great deal of you know jaw gnashing about you know teeth gnashing about you know the accuracy of polling, the truth of the matter is is that a lot of that is borne by the media itself and the media polls, and not necessarily campaign polls. Most campaign operatives, uh, virtually all that I know, uh, still have faith 
in at least the proprietary polls that are done by the campaigns themselves. Uh, and that's why they've not moved away from them. That's why they still use them. But the media polls, they take with a grain of salt. We, we all do. Mm. Like the Fox poll in Virginia that had Glenn Youngkin winning by eight points. <laughs> we all knew that that was just not the case. Uh, and all you had to do was look at the sample and see that the sample was too Republican. And the shift from the previous survey was the fact that they got more Republicans in this sample than they got in the last sample. And, but unfortunately, the media doesn't focus on those things. They are very lazy. They are not pollsters. They don't understand necessarily how to read a poll. And so they just go with the horse race numbers, and that's the headline. Mm. So. And I'm curious, in your um, work using polling data to advise um, political campaigns, mm-hmm. um, what are conversations like with uh, you know, political communications experts and policy folks? Are you ever in conflict with them, or do you ever have disagreements about how what the numbers say versus what the messaging should or is? Well, um, it's different. Policy folks is different than it may be with, well, you got to separate people. People Mm. that are in actual politics. Politics is theater. Mm. Government is governing. Okay? And so you could have somebody who does communications, but they work on the government side. So they work on Capitol Hill or they work for one of the agencies, et cetera, et cetera. They may be career communications people, never worked in a campaign. But when you go to a campaign... You know, the campaign people are doing campaigns. And so they recognize, you know, I I can't tell you how many times I've heard a policy person say, well, you you can't say that. You can't do that. And I'd be like, why not? Well, because nobody nobody says it that way. I'm like, yeah, I don't care whether you think they say it that way. I care how the voter's going to react. And it is Washington... You know, you have the fortune of going to Georgetown, and you also have the misfortune that Georgetown is in the middle of Washington, <laughs> and it's in the middle of the Beltway, where the notions about what sells and what doesn't sell are so distorted because it's such an insular town. One of the reasons why I don't live here, and John and I talk about it all the time, he lives in Alabama, I live in Florida, and we stay as far away from the Beltway as often as we can <laughs> because it's a very distorted view. And people think that everybody in the rest of the country is thinking about government and policy all day long. Mm. And they're not. They're living their lives. And they don't really care about most of it. In fact, they tune it out because it makes them angry. (laughs) (laughs) And obviously in the past five years, a lot has changed in politics. And there is an increasing divide between parties. And how does that aspect affect polling and then the strategy in campaigning well it affects it affects polling significantly because if you go back and look you know the the first major errors if you will reported or that were focused on were in 2016 and the real error there was is that when you do polls a poll first of all 95 out of 100 times Anybody who studies statistics, even Stats 101 can tell you this, that, you know, 95 out of 100 times the polls are going to be right or within the margin of error of the other 94 polls you took. Five times, it's going to be wrong. It's just the way it works, okay? Um, But a poll is only as good as the universe you survey. So if I only surveyed um, left-handed people and tried to tell you that that opinion worked for right-handed people, it wouldn't. It would be inaccurate because I didn't survey 
the whole audience that I should have. And one of the problems with the 2016 polls was that when they were looking at the partisan splits in their surveys, they were both undercounting Republicans and uh, un, uh, l less than college educated white voters, which by that point had become solidly Trump. And so when you have two groups like that that are underrepresented, you were going to underrepresent Trump's vote. And during the campaigns, and what can we do in campaigns is we oftentimes just let the data float so we have an unweighted look at the data to see. And when you see survey after survey, you know, a surge in Republicans screening into the survey or a surge in uh, less than college educated white voters, something's going on. And you really shouldn't be like, tinkering with it to make it what you think it should be. But at least in the worst case, look at it from several different perspectives, the data. And so that's changed. As far as the polarization, the polarization, you know, you go back when I first started in this business in the 80s. I know none of you were born then. Uh, but when I first started, you know, uh, Democrats outnumbered Republicans by affiliation in this country by double digits. Um, and in fact, it was basically uh, a fact of life that a Republican to win for president had to get a quarter of Democrats or more to vote for them. What's happened is the parties have been polarized around ideology. And as that polarization has increased, the number of fungible or persuadable voters continues to shrink. So even when you ask what party do you affiliate with, we'll ask a follow-up question of the people who say they're independents. We'll say, okay, but which party do you really lean towards? And we'll wind up with, we may get 30% or more that say they're independents, but when we push them, about half of them will split off mm -hmm. and pick a side. And they're very much like their partisan brethren, and the pure independents are pure. So that persuadable universe is, is much smaller now than when I first got involved in politics. And the other thing that's changed is how difficult it is to reach voters, you know, when I started in politics, there were most media markets had three TV channels, and that was the way you reached them. The newspaper, direct mail, and on the TV. Now, I mean, a quarter of voters don't have, they only have streaming service. They don't even watch regular TV. They don't watch cable. They don't have cable. Or that, you know, so who do you, how do you get them? How, how do you get them? And social media, think about how many different social media sites and websites people can visit it's just crazy so it's very difficult to communicate mm. and so you know clearly you're here at the institute of politics at an event called diagnosing the divide mm -hmm. and so zeroing in um on the root causes of that polarization that and that as you said that sorting of um of folks around the two major parties um you know if you could attribute the the largest driving factor as to why um why voters are particularly gravitating toward either the Republicans or the Democrats in creating that divide. From your perspective, what would it be? You know, it's, well, um, there are some overriding factors. Mm -hmm. uh, Republicans, as the Pew poll points out, Republicans generally gravitate towards smaller government, um, more forceful foreign policy, strong military, um, generally secure borders, um, generally more likely to be in favor of uh, more faith-based programs and things of that nature, the Democrats being the opposite. They, you know, they, if you ask the question, you think government does too much, 
uh, and should leave it to people to do things for themselves, or you know, government needs to be bigger to help people better. You know, I'm paraphrasing the question, obviously. You would find that you know Republicans would be 80% on one side, Democrats would be 80% on the other side. So it's a fundamental belief in the role of the individual. Uh, mm -hmm. Republicans less likely to think that health care is a right. Democrats much more likely to think health care is a right. So it revolves around the role of government uh, in their lives, um, uh, the, the role of religion in their lives, where Republicans are much more likely to be uh, stronger uh, in terms of church going and religious affiliation and so on and so forth. That is the commonalities that you know kind of separate them. Mm -hmm. But there are issues that go deeper in terms of the division. And those issues tend to revolve around cultural issues that they just view completely differently. Mm. And one of the things that uh, the Pew poll clearly points out is uh, racial justice. Um, Republicans do not have a very different view of racial justice than Democrats do. Mm. Um, Democrats, largely as a whole, see that there is still injustice, and you know there needs to be fixed. And Republicans are kind of like, nope, we're past this. Let's move on to something else. Mm. And so that's something that's very difficult to bridge. Now, obviously, there are more African Americans in the Democratic Party, and so therefore that pumps that number up. But even the white progressives in the Democratic Party believe that. Um, so uh, racial justice would be one of them. Immigration would be another one. And depending on how you slice the immigration pie, you know, Republicans are have a much more populist take on immigration uh, from a security and an economic security perspective than Democrats do. Mm -hmm. And so those are the things that feed because they're very charged. Uh, they're very charged issues, whereas people don't generally get as charged about military spending or things of that nature. Okay, well, Mr. Anzalone, thank you so, or Mr. Fabrizio, excuse me. It's okay, you can confuse us, we're both Italian. Thank you so much for joining us on the pod. You're welcome, um, you're welcome. So Glad to, to be here, good luck, uh, and good luck at being a freshman, and uh, I wish you all the success, and uh, don't don't confuse me with Anzalone again, because <laughs> he gets in trouble a lot. <laughs> Sounds good. So, Mr. Anzalone, thank you so much for joining us here on Fly on the Wall. On Fly on the Wall. We're so excited to have you. Well, it's great to be back. As I said, my daughter graduated here, and... So I spent four, four glorious years here and in, in the tombs, so uh, <laughs> it's, it's really great to be back. Hoya Saxa. Hoya Saxa. <laughs> um, and so uh, you, of course, are an expert in uh, polling, especially in uh, from the Democratic side of things. You worked for um, Hillary Clinton's campaign as a, as a chief pollster and, of course, Joe Biden's presidential campaign, among a litany of other races. So I'm just curious... Um, from your perspective, what is the role of polling in terms of our political systems? You know, it's the old debate. Does public opinion follow leaders or do leaders follow the polls? Yeah, I, you know, it's a great question. I think there's there's two things I would say here. Is One is that, you know, there's a lot of myths to break about what political pollsters do because 90% of what we do is message development, right? It's kind of things that most people don't see because everyone's kind of obsessed with the horse race, you know, who's ahead, who's behind, what's the margin, how close to, are they to 50%. But in terms of what our trade is, is that we're strategic consultants. We use polling as a tool to help a candidate define their message. Um, one of the most stark and clear examples of that is we poll for Michigan's governor, Gretchen Whitmer. 
uh, and her uh, slogan in 2018 was fix the damn roads, right? <laughs> That's a really easy message to digest. And, you know, Michigan has the worst roads in the country. Thank God for Biff and the infrastructure uh, plan that President Biden helped pass. Um, but we found that from voters, right? And she knew that as well, instinctively. Uh, and I think at one point someone said that to her on a, you know, when she was uh, actually campaigning, just fix the damn roads. And we would hear it in focus groups as well. And so message development is a really big part of what we do uh, as well as targeting. And I think that one of the things I always tell people is think of polling as an efficiency tool. It helps you, you know, what rises to the top, the most important issues and messages, but also helps you identify the target universes that you use your valuable paid communications dollars to communicate to because you don't want to spend money communicating people who can't move right and so that becomes really important the second part of it is is that i never want to work for candidates who don't know basically what they want to say polling can help you know get the, find out which of those things that you believe in rise to the top um and so you're not talking about 15 things you're talking about the three things that you really believe in that people can digest um and again, a great example is, is that we polled for uh, President Biden, then Vice President Biden, for two years. He did not poll before he announced in April of 2019 in Philadelphia. He knew why he was running for president. He had the principle and the passion of why he, wa why, why he was running, but also what he wanted to do as president. And so, sure, we polled after that to you know refine some things and test issues and targeting, uh, but I rather work for a candidate who kind of knows the principles of why he or she is running, and we can help build around uh, certain things that you know people can digest in a kind of an easy way. Mm. And so, um, as experts in the field of polling and public opinion. I'm curious as well about your thoughts on the relationship between polls and leadership strategy. Does public opinion follow political leaders or should politicians be sensitive to changes in public opinion? There's, you could write a dissertation on that question and many people have, but I, I do think you know polling and public opinion certainly has a role in a democracy. I mean, one of the things that for public pollsters like myself, part of why we do what we do is you know, arguably arguably to keep politicians honest you know you want to keep a sense of the the pulse of the public so politicians know where the public stands and the public also the public knows where the public stands so there really is a really important role of polling in a democracy and to your question about whether you know politicians should follow public opinion i don't think most pollsters even would say you should follow public opinion and not take other things into account, but it's an important piece of information in a democracy. And sort of shifting gears in terms of communicating what your how your data analysis works, you know, in recent years, especially after I think the 2016 election, we've seen growing skepticism on all sides as to how to read polls and react to polls. And you were sort of discussing earlier how a lot of the polling work goes in prior to getting the message out there. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm wondering, from your perspective as a political practitioner and from your perspective as more of an, an analyst, um, how do you package your data analysis either to candidates and campaigns to make them believe it and make it salient or to the public so it seems digestible and reliable? 
Yeah, and I think that this goes again back to the kind of the myths of polling, at least for um, the political consultant industry, mm -hmm. which is 99% of what we do is not for public consumption, right? I mean, we are there as part of a strategic team trying to help a candidate get from point A to point B, and which is to get 50 plus one and win an election. Um, and so a lot of times what public polls do and what consultants, it's conflated, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we get, you know, we're going to get hit hard if the public media polls are off, which you've seen happen. Not that we weren't off too, but that's really not our purpose. Our purpose is not to give you the big number, the little number. Uh, campaigns do that uh, often if they're ahead, right? They never do it if they're uh, if they're behind. Um, so the fact, again, the fact is, what we try to do is help campaigns strategically guide them through a campaign to help them with the message, to help them with the efficiency uh, of targeting. Um, but we're not in the business of wanting to make those public uh, and give big number, little number. Oh, and just to follow up mm -hmm. on that, have you ever been in a room where there's where there's been a tough conversation between the campaign strategists and what the polling numbers say? Oh yeah, I've told many a candidate that they're going to lose. I, <laughs> I have one of my longer oldest candidates is a guy named John Cullerton who was the Senate president in Illinois, in Illinois State Senate for years. But he also ran for Congress. He ran against you know Dan Rostenkowski, and for literally twenty something years, he would always interest me, introduce me to new people. This is Johnny Ansloni. This is he's my pollster who told me exactly how much I was going to lose by, <laughs> and why that's important. I think in a campaign structure is that I always felt that in my thirty years as a pollster, I almost had a fiduciary responsibility. I mean, I had candidates who wanted to second mortgage their homes or go into their kids' college funds, and so I think that you have a, a responsibility about what is the reality of you winning, right? And what does that mean? Um, so we've told a lot of candidates that they're going to lose. Uh, we've also told a lot of prospective candidates that sh they should not run. Um, and those are tough conversations, but we're here for a reality check. We want to win. Uh, we don't want to lose. Uh, and sometimes it's just not the right time for a candidate to run. And Ms. Kai, from your perspective, um, how do you go about you know, formulating and presenting your data analysis in a way that, that the public and those consuming Pew's work find reliable? So a couple of different things, and, and again, I think John touched on this, there's a big difference between public polling and campaign polling, b both in, in, not necessarily in methods, but in what the aims of the, the polling are, are for. And, and so first and foremost, I do think a similarity is the best pollsters campaign or public pollsters put a lot of energy and effort into really stellar methods. Mm -hmm. We spend a tremendous amount of our time understanding you know, response rates, like who's, who's responding to polls and who's not responding to polls and how can we adjust for that? Um, really, because we all want to get the absolute best samples that we can. We really want to represent, you know, in the case of public pollsters, to the public or to the media, case of campaign posters, you want you want to be able to present the best data to your, your clients, right? So that's a similarity. But for us, as you said, we also spend a lot of time communicating to the public and we really want people to understand and trust the information we're sharing. We put a lot of time into not just our analysis, but thinking through graphically how mm -hmm. we're gonna illustrate every, our findings really in the absolute clearest way. Um, we spend a lot of time 
checking and rechecking our, our write-ups and, and making sure, A, the data is absolutely correct all the time, and it's really understandable. We know we're communicating with people who aren't pollsters, mm -hmm. and they, they need to be able to understand uh, the data in a way that, you know, those of us talking to each other, you know, we can talk technically, but but to the lay public, you want to talk in more, um, you know, in, in more approachable language. Uh, so I think that yeah. there are a couple of different things that, that we put in, and, in there. Can I add that polling is really expensive. It is. To do it right is really expensive. And there's plenty of media outlets who don't want to spend the money to do it one or two or three grades level better, right? And that's a problem. I mean, I have a problem with some of the media polls because of the small sample sizes they use. Um, for example, during the presidential primary season, they may do a national sample and then just take a subsample of 400 interviews um, for the Democratic presidential primary. And then they're comparing that from the last time they did it with very small subgroups of, say, people of color, et cetera. And I actually think it's ir irresponsible. So polling is really expensive uh, to do the right way. The other difference between what we do and what they do is often how the analysis, and I don't say you is it because Pew's different, they're the gold standard. I really mean the public polls. And here's what I mean is that the public polls do a different type of analysis. They get hung up on the, the, the gap. Oh, you know, Biden's at 50% and Trump is at, you know, 42%. So there's an eight point gap. He leads by eight points. Eh, not true. Like what we've always learned, especially from the 16 experience, is that basically if you go to 538 or RCP and look at the average of polls in the battleground states where Biden was and what he got, they're within a point. Meaning the analysis, which we knew, is that we always wanted to be at 50% or a little bit above because that's all we were going to get. Because a lot of times now in this environment with Trump, you get what you poll. And so that's really important in how we fed information to General Malley, the campaign manager, and the strategic team, right? We were, you know, not at 50% in North Carolina and Florida, but we were at 50% in Georgia. Guess what? We're going to lose in North Carolina and Florida. We should be moving resources to Georgia, which is what we did. Mm -hmm. But if you looked at the headlines of the, the TV or the media polls, it was always the gap. And so they analyzed things for kind of clickbait or they just – analyze different and they're looking at the, the the margin rather than what that means if someone like a former vice president who's kind of incumbent like is at 50 right they're not going to probably get much more than that and so there's a there's a lot of a lot of you know problems in terms of how the media quite frankly reports uh public polling yeah yeah uh, something else I'll, I'll point to that's a little bit of the subtext of what we're talking about is that there's something very specific about what, what's, what we sometimes call horse race polling, right? So uh, what John was just talking about was you know, looking at the Biden-Trump contest, the, the horse race between Biden and Trump. But I think it's true both for public polling and for uh, campaign polling. That's, it's, it's not an unimportant number, but it's not the only thing. And in fact, for public polling, it's often the case that, that the rest of the poll is actually really yeah. what it, it should and, and is about. Uh, meaning you wanna, what public pollsters, the good public pollsters are trying to do in the context of a election is help the public understand what's going on. And the what going on isn't what's 
you know, who's going to win, we're going to find that out <laughs> in a couple of days. But what's motivating people? Who, who are motivated? Uh, you know, what, what types of people are planning on showing up, not showing up? What kinds of issues are, are mattering? What are the impressions of the two candidates? All of that is really a very important yeah. part of public polling, also campaign polling. Yeah. And, and, and I think there's a particular challenge with, with this horse race polling. Again, we both face it in different ways, but it really counts a lot on figuring out who's going to show up, meaning you know, likely voter, likely voter screens. I, figuring out not just I'm polling the public and I know who, you know, what percentage likes Biden, what percentage likes Trump, but narrowing that filter down to the people that you think are going to vote, and that's inherently. It's not guesswork because there are a lot of smart people working on this, but there's inherent uncertainty around that. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the challenges is a lot of people who evaluate <clears throat> polling evaluate it based on how the horse race performs when that's just a really pretty small sliver of public polling. Um, and it's a particularly dif difficult one. Right. And the fact that, again, you know, who's coming out is so important. Virginia is a perfect example. No one thought that you were gonna get more people out in 2021 in Virginia than 217, where people were reacting to the Trump presidency, right? You had historic turnout. And what happens? There was 600,000 or more people, or I can't remember. It was 26% more turnout. Uh, that's a problem if you're an analytics or a polling, you know, a pollster, and you weren't reaching hard to reach voters. And I think that one of the things that happened in 16 and 20 to, to a lesser extent, but still an extent, the polling misses has helped us reevaluate how we have to continually innovate mm. and how we have to go and get hard to reach voters. And I think we're actually doing a really good job. You know, we had Youngkin plus three in our Virginia polling. We had him leading as far back as five weeks. Not many people had that happen. And then the public polls caught up with us. So. We're constantly innovating. Pew's constantly innovating. Um, and if we don't, it's, it's going to be a death knell to, to our industry. So um, just sort of to wrap up and comment, you're here, you're here at the Institute of Politics uh, at an event called Diagnosing the Divide. Um, as leading pollsters and political data-driven analysts, um, both in the partisan and nonpartisan fields, um, I'm curious, as hard as it is to boil down, um, what is from each of your perspectives, the most salient factor that is causing polarization and division in our politics, if we are polarized. <laughs> There's no doubt we're polarized. I, I mean, I think, I think there are a lot of different definitions of polarization, and we can and do talk about which ones are growing, which are, ones are staying st you know, stable, which ones are better or worse. But I think you know, there's there's a, lot, a ton of evidence that you know there is increasing partisan polar or there has been increasing partisan polarization. Uh, it's it's a it's a tough it's a tough question. I don't have a, a, a an, an easy answer to what the main factor is. I think the fact is there are a lot of different factors all playing out together and and reinforcing uh, one another. You know, I think we're yeah. seeing, for instance, values divides between. Mm -hmm. The Republican and, and Democratic coalition—they're not new. They're—they've just grown over time. And and some of this is what's called sorting, right? People who maybe used to be liberal Republicans or used to be conservative Democrats kind of finding their way to a, another coalition. But some of it is is real movement. Uh, and and then I think that reinforces itself with what's called 
affective polarization in the more uh, academic world where you know it's then becomes not just about values but about how people feel mm. about one another so to be sure you know there's just a lot of factors yeah. involved and i know i'm uh, you know <laughs> kind of going around your question i will go around not it. just one okay <laughs> no I, no listen i think that's right first of all i think again i'm a big into breaking myths and the myth is that we weren't just polarized in the trump era right we were we were be beginning to become more polarized really during Obama, quite frankly. And I think that, you know, even before, but I mean, the fact is, is that tra the trajectory probably increased during Obama. I think that race was part of an issue, but I think that this is what's, what's also important is that I think that Trump was a catalyst to really accelerate and intensify the divide. And I think that it's hard to debate that quite frankly. But I also think that, for example, things like immigration uh, and uh, the fact that the, the lack of um, uh, rising of, of, of wages, et cetera, you know, this kind of white victimization, et cetera, uh, of white males and things like that in their jobs, et cetera, et cetera. And um, all that was kind of like, again, the catalyst was Trump who was speaking things that was in the bubble of people's heads. And it intensified it. And quite frankly, I think that you can add to that 20 months of a pandemic, which now, you know, in itself, science in itself has been, you know, uh, uh, become a partisan divide. And that really creates a powder keg. Mm. <laughs> there he is. All right. And we, and we have our, our, uh, our third political expert walking into them right now. But before um, we get... Uh, his take on things. We like to lighten things up and, and bridge the divide here at Geopolitics. So we have one lightning round question for each of you. Um, quick answer, um, or quick question, quick answer. So as leading political analysts who have worked at the highest levels of, of public opinion analysis, we could not let you leave this interview without answering the most pressing policy question of our age. We are about one week from Thanksgiving. Should one be allowed to listen to Christmas music before Turkey Day? I will start with yes, because it brings complete joy to my wife. We're already listening to it, and she runs the household. So if Mama's happy, I'm happy, <laughs> and we're, we're already listening to it. It really pains me, Tony. I, my kids will tell you I sang Christmas songs to them in the summertime. I believe it should be, while I hate hanging the decorations, <laughs> while I hate when they do that before uh, Halloween, <laughs> Christmas songs are happy songs, and they should be sung and listened to all the time. I'll, I'm keeping with my nonpartisan stance, probably, but also my real opinion. Absolutely, but be respectful of the people who are not particularly happy about that. And so when they, you walk into their, you know, their house and they don't want to listen to Christmas music, I think it's okay to, to, to not force it. Yeah, I'm also somebody that listens to Christmas music year-round. What about you, Sam? Uh, you know, pre-pandemic, I was... A hardliner, nothing before Turkey Day, but post-pandemic, you know, maybe we need a little bit more joy in this world. So I'm, I'm turn, turning the corner. 
Sam, I loved our conversation with them. I definitely learned a lot about the importance of polling and campaigns, and it was very interesting to hear their takes on the current division in politics. For sure. I thought it was super interesting to have each of their unique perspectives in a room together. It was, we're so fortunate to be able to bring that together. But Andrea, I do feel like I'm forgetting something before we wrap this up. Yes, Sam, we need to remind our listeners to follow on social media at Fly on the Wall and subscribe to get our podcast every week. Oh, that's right. Good catch, Andre. Don't you mean SWAT? <laughs> Thanks for listening. See you next time.